Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Steve. If you are new to Faith Bible Church, or even if this is your first time, this isn't really a normal Sunday for us. We normally don't have a business meeting at the beginning of our worship service. And secondly, I don't normally use PowerPoint, but today we are going to work through um, some tough material. We're going to talk about divorce and remarriage and we want to look at this from a through a biblical grid, a biblical perspective. And the subject is so vast. Um, I, I wanted to do it in a way that I felt could best communicate the truth. I want to mention a couple of things. One, feel free to take notes, but. After the service, there's a packet that's going to be available to you out in the foyer. And that packet will have much greater detail than what I'm going to share this morning. It's going to have uh, more references that you can look up. And all of the references that we will talk about, the different passages of Scripture, are in that packet. And the, the packet will not be the slides that I'm going to show but the content of the slides is all in the packet. So don't feel like you necessarily need to try to write furiously because the data from the slides will be in the packet. Secondly, just to mention, um, what I'm going to talk about today is the culmination of a lot of years of working through this subject early as a pastor. Right out of seminary, I was faced with uh, the issue of divorce and remarriage early on. And I thought to myself, I've got to spend some time really seeing what the Bible teaches about this. And so I blocked out a 100 hours, two 50-hour work weeks, and just devoted myself to studying that. And that was early on. Then when I came to from North Dakota here to Iowa, um, our elders here at Faith Bible Church went through uh, that study again. And we spent a long time grappling with these issues, reading articles, looking at different books, reading the scriptures, and studying some of the key passages in the scriptures so that as elders here at Faith Bible Church, we hold to a common position on this issue. I'm going to read two passages of scripture this morning. The one is the one that we've come to in our study on the Sermon on the Mount. And that's why we're doing this this morning because that's where we are in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we are going to look at just two verses this morning, verses 31 and 32 of Matthew 5. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So that's what Jesus said here in Matthew 5 in this section that we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. Then we're going to go over to Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus' teaching on the subject is also recorded. We're going to talk about 
both of these passages this morning. I'm going to pick it up in verse 3 of Matthew 19. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it's not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man and his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. So that will be our launching pad today as we continue in our study on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you have been with us through our study, the overriding theme of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is giving us pictures of what it looks like to be living in right relationship with God. As we put it up here, Jesus is giving us pictures of how a person who is right with God should live. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, Don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And by that, Jesus was saying that the entire Old Testament the the section that's referred to as the law and, and all of the prophets, the entire Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. So much so that if the Old Testament law points to Jesus, it's actually pointing to Jesus' teaching. And Jesus has the authority and the right to tell us what the law really means. Now, what was happening in the day is that the religious leaders, the the scribes, the interpreters of the law, and the Pharisees were looking at the Old Testament law in a very external way. And they were almost looking at it like a checklist. And if I'm not doing this, and if I'm not doing this, then I must be right with God. And over the years, the rabbis started writing, in a sense, commentaries on the Old Testament law. And what the rabbis wrote was actually considered to almost be as binding as what the law actually said. And so they even, in a sense, enhanced what the law said in a way that they could attain it. And so you have the religious leaders walking around thinking, hey, I'm good. Everything's going great. 
But Jesus, in the section that we are now in, in Matthew 5, the last part of Matthew 5, is showing that they've actually misinterpreted the law. He started out in Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26, talking about the sixth commandment. And in all of these six examples of misunderstanding, Jesus is using a common formula, something to the effect of, well, you have heard... But I say to you, and we've talked about the fact that in the Greek language, Jesus uses a particular structure in the Greek language that really stresses, I say to you, I have the authority to tell you what the law is saying. So he starts out by going to the sixth commandment. You shall not commit murder. Pharisees are saying, hey, I haven't committed murder. I'm good to go. And Jesus says, well, that's the external application of the law. But I say to you that just because you haven't taken out a knife and taken somebody's life doesn't mean that you have not offended God and sinned in this area. Because if you hold ill will to a fellow disciple, you're just as good, you're just as guilty as if you murdered him. Then Jesus went on to say in Matthew 5, 21, or 27 through 30. Pharisees said, I haven't committed an act of adultery. But Jesus says, if you look at a member of the opposite sex with lust in your heart, you are just as guilty as the person who has actually carried out the act. And now today, Jesus comes to the third of his six illustrations of the Pharisees misinterpreting the law. And he's going to talk about the Pharisees' understanding of divorce and remarriage versus God's plan for marriage. Before we begin, we need to make this statement that Each and every one of us in this room, I'm pretty sure, is in a common place. Meaning that divorce has touched us all. Whether it's a parent, whether it is one of your children, a sibling, an aunt, an uncle. It has touched all of our families. I will never forget the, I have four siblings. I have an older brother, two younger sisters. Both of my sisters have gone through the pain of divorce. I'll never forget, I was in college and I was home. I had a, my own little business. I was a beekeeper. I was in the basement of our house out in the country in, in rural Iowa, and I was uh, extracting honey. And my dad came down the steps and told me that my sister's marriage that she had been barely married for a year was going to dissolve. It was going to end. And that hit me so hard, I just became immediately nauseous. And we had like an old cellar door, and I can remember running up those steps, and I just was, I was sick to my stomach outside. And I've watched the pain of this as my, uh, Both of my sisters have endured not only the process of divorce, but everything that has come with that in the subsequent years. It touches us all. And it's, it's a, it's easy for us to try to form our view 
of divorce and remarriage based on our own experience. And and I know some of you in this room have suffered divorce and you fought for your marriage. You didn't want that. But sometimes it's outside of our control. And it's it's easy for us to form what we think about divorce or remarriage based on our experience. But what we have to try to do is lift our eyes above our own experiences and, and, and try to look at what the Bible says. And so what we want to do starting out here is just to look at what some of our presuppositions are here as as elders of Faith Bible Church, what are our presuppositions? I did a little test in the office this week, and I, I went down, and there happened to be some young people in our office area, and I said, hey, what's a presupposition? And I was told, I don't know. So I figured I can't just say presupposition. So that's why it says in parentheses, beliefs that we are bringing into this discussion. That's what a presupposition is. What, what do I hold to as a foundational belief that I'm bringing into this conversation? And these are presuppositions that we as elders of Faith Bible Church identified that we brought to the table as we discussed this issue. Presupposition number one is that the scriptures, the, the Bible, is our final source of authority. Second uh, Peter one twenty one and Second Timothy three sixteen talk about the fact that the scriptures are inspired by God. The Peter passage talks about is the writers of scripture. The scriptures were written over a period of sixteen hundred years by forty different human authors, and it says that as they wrote, they were bore along by the Holy Spirit, meaning. That as they wrote, they were using their words and their grammar, but they were also writing exactly what God intended for them to write. They were writing God's word to us. And when I served on the board of Back to the Bible, Dr. Woodrow Kroll always said this, the Bible is the only book that God ever wrote. I love that. It's the only book that God ever wrote. Secondly, that the scriptures are without error in their original writings. At some point, Matthew sat down and wrote out the book of Matthew. We don't have any of those original letters or manuscripts. But we have scores of manuscripts and some really old, almost back to the time of the original. And there's scholars that have devoted their whole life to figuring out what did the original text say. There's a few minor places in the scriptures that don't have any bearing on our faith that scholars disagree. And oftentimes it's just like which article, like was it the or uh. Sometimes a scribe as he was copying would would get some words mixed up. There were guys, listen to this, there were guys, I can show you in the Hebrew Bible, their whole job was to sit down and take like a feather and ink, whatever writing utensil they used, and to copy by hand like the book of Isaiah. In the manuscript of Isaiah, there's a little mark that shows what the middle 
letter is in the book of Isaiah. And they know how many letters got up to that mark. So what the scribe would do, he's halfway done. He counts how many letters that he has written. And when he gets to that mark, if his number of letters isn't what it's supposed to be, he has to tear up the whole manuscript and start over. Hey, honey, how was work today? Oh, man, it was really a drag. I'm off by one letter and I had to rip it up and start all over. That's how meticulous the scribes copied the scriptures. So the belief, our presupposition is there's not errors in the original manuscripts of the scripture. And finally, the scriptures have to be our guide in our walk. The scriptures have to be the lens through which we pass what we believe. What so often happens in our circles today is that people use culture as their lens and then try to pass scripture through culture and say, well, I guess we're going to chuck that because that doesn't really fit who we are today. It's the exact opposite of what we should do. The scripture needs to be our lens and then we pass what's happening in our culture through the lens of scripture. Presupposition number two is that godly people differ in interpretation. So what I'm going to say today, there's people that disagree with me vehemently. But as a presuppositional statement, there's only one valid interpretation for each passage of Scripture. We're going to talk about Matthew 5.32 this morning. Jesus only meant one thing when he uses this exclusion clause except for immorality or unchastity. But sometimes scholars disagree as far as what did he mean. So we've got to be gracious with each other. You know, there's truths about the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and the need to place our faith in him uh, for salvation alone, we will go to the wall for those things. Those those are non-negotiables. Those are the major tenets of, 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 of Christianity. But there's other conclusions that individual churches come to that we've got to be gracious with each other and, and be understanding because not everyone agrees with their look at the Scriptures and our look at the Scriptures. Next presupposition, in God's original design for marriage, he designed marriage to be permanent. Jesus, we read it in Matthew 19, he quotes Genesis 2.24, God's original design for marriage. And Jesus says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Romans chapter 7 verse 2, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. And then when is in the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, when the Israelites started just divorcing their wives, some Bible teachers believe that it says that they were divorcing the wives of their youth. Some of these men were saying, I'm just going to go for a younger wife. This is what God said. I hate divorce. So the presupposition is that God... Design marriage to be permanent. 
Next, there's always forgiveness in Christ. Even if a person divorces apart from what the Bible allows, there's always forgiveness available in Christ. If a person divorces apart from what the Bible allows and marries another, his or her sin can be viewed as a single act of sin against his or her mate and against God. The new couple would not be living in continual sin against God. Now this is a whole huge study. And in that packet, in the back, there's some further definition of this. But basically what this is saying is that, say for example, a couple divorced one or both of them, divorced their original mate and married each other, the solution is not to go through a second divorce. That that God views, even if somebody sins against God and divorces their spouse and marries another, that that, that would be a single act of sin. They're not continually living in sin. That, that if a person recognizes the hardness of their heart and they should not have divorced their spouse and, and in claims 1 John 1, 9, God forgives them and cleanses them. God's not promised everyone a mate in Scripture. That um, He's not promised every Christian a mate or that every Christian has a right to physical intimacy, but He has promised enablement. If a person finds themselves on the receiving end of a divorce that they did not want, God has promised to strengthen and encourage by His grace and and undergird that person. And then finally, we must love those suffering divorce. The church must undergird those who have suffered divorce and encourage them to exercise their spiritual gifts. An offending party in divorce is to be reaffirmed in love when repentance occurs. Even if a person is the instigator of the divorce and they divorce their spouse without any biblical warrant at all. If that person comes back and says, you know what, I sinned against my wife. They are to be reaffirmed in love by the local church. Our God of grace brings blessing to couples who at some point in time did not follow God's plan for marriage. And ultimately, each person is accountable to God for his or her own decision to remarry or not marry following divorce. Okay, those are the presuppositions. Let's dive in to Matthew 5, 32 and 31. So here's the verses. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Notice those words are in all caps. In most of our Bible translations, when you see that they're all caps, that means it's a quotation. So here, Jesus is actually quoting from the Old Testament. I wonder if my battery could be getting weak. Uh, my clicker is being a little bit ornery. So if we may have to have one in the wings. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Would you guys maybe bring me down a fresh battery? In Matthew 5.31, Jesus is referring back to Numbers chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, where the Old Testament law forbids 
the practice of a man divorcing his wife, the wife marrying another man, the second marriage ending in divorce, and then the first husband remarrying the wife. So that that's what Deuteronomy 24 is talking about. So a guy says, I don't want to be married to you anymore. He divorces his wife. She goes and marries another man. He says... I don't want to be married to you anymore. Deuteronomy 24 says that the first husband cannot remarry that wife. So, Deuteronomy 24.1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, Because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. So that's verse 1 of Deuteronomy 24. Here's the issue. The phrase, because he has found some indecency in her, it's not defined. We don't know what that some indecency meant. And so by Jesus' time, remember there's these rabbis who are interpreting the law, And they are almost like writing commentaries. Well, there's two rabbis during Jesus' day. One guy's name is Halal, and the other guy's name is Shammai. And these guys have a following, and they are divided on what was meant by some indecency in her. So here's the school of Halal. They call it a school because... These guys would have a bunch of understudies, like like, uh, uh, rabbis in training. And so there's a whole bunch of rabbis that followed Hillel. The rabbinic literature records many differences of opinion between this more liberal school and the rival school of Shammai. So the guys, the Hillel guys, there are extra biblical writings, like writing outside of the scriptures, that would say... If the wife burned breakfast, he could say, I want out of here. Seriously, like if she burned the biscuits, I don't want to be married to you anymore. That's how liberal the school of Hillel was. The school of Shammai was much more conservative. And the allowable excuses for divorce were more stringent. So we read Matthew 19 earlier. Here's what's going on in Matthew 19. The Pharisee came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Here's what's going on. They wanted to see whether he would side with the school of Shammai or the school of Halal. The Shammai school would allow divorce only for what was morally shameful, while the school of Halal allowed a husband to divorce his wife for a variety of lesser reasons. As Matthew records Jesus teaching on divorce and remarriage in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, Jesus addresses the religious leaders' misunderstanding of the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 24. The religious leaders were divided as to what the law allowed as reasons for divorce. Some were liberal, some were stringent. Jesus corrects the misunderstanding in Matthew 5.32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
So in Matthew 5.32, Jesus is saying that neither school was right. Not Hillel or Shammai are correct. The terms for allowable divorce are neither lenient or strict. Divorce is not allowed except for the reason of unchastity. And that's what we're going to unpack, what that means. Bible scholars are pretty uniformly agreed that even in Deuteronomy 24, when it allowed divorce, it was not talking about adultery because if there was adultery present, the offending party would be stoned to death. So these two schools were talking about reasons for divorce other than adultery. Here, Jesus is trying to be tricked. These Pharisees come to him in Matthew 19. Hey, what, what do you think the allowable reason is for divorce? Thinking that they're going to get him in trouble with one or both of these groups. And he just takes the stuffing out of the whole argument. Because he says, hey, except for the reason of a chastity, there is no divorce and remarriage. So they said to him in Matthew 19, well, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus responds, because of your hardness of heart. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it's not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, what I want to do is compare Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. And you'll notice, gives me a chance to use this really cool laser pointer. I didn't know we had this, and man, it's pretty neat. So, notice here in Matthew 5, Jesus says, except for the reason of unchastity, and in Matthew 19.9 it says, in the NASB, except for immorality. Now, here's the issue. It's the same Greek word. I have no idea why the NASB chose unchastity for 532 and immorality for 19.9 because it's the same Greek word that they're translating, pornea. And we're going to talk about that. Another difference in Matthew 5.32, Matthew 5.32 says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. Most likely what Jesus was saying there is, remember, they lived in an agrarian society, meaning um, it was farm-based. A single woman would have a very difficult time surviving in that culture. And so most likely what Jesus is saying is, you divorce your wife, she's going to be forced into marrying somebody else for her survival. But Matthew 19 is more focused toward the man who's doing the divorcing. And says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So here's the comparison. In Matthew 5, a man divorcing his wife causes her to commit adultery. And the man marrying a divorced woman commits adultery. In Matthew 19... Jesus is saying the man is the one who commits adultery when he divorces his wife and marries another. So basically, Jesus is is using an all-encompassing words here, saying that when divorce occurs, except for immorality, and another marriage occurs, then they are committing adultery. 
Here's the commonality between the, t- the two passages, except for pornea. On the left is what it looks like in the Greek, Greek language. On the right is just the transliteration. The P uh, corresponds to the pi, to the first letter on the left of Greek. So the question comes, what does pornea mean? And in that packet that you can pick up, there's tons of Bible verses that you can look up. As we as elders studied this, we concluded that most New Testament uses of pornea refer to illicit physical intimacy. For example, the noun form of the word is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, talking about this guy that was having relations with his father's wife. Most believe it would be a stepmom. Also, in 1 Corinthians 6, 15, that say, uh, another form, but a noun of the word, is used to refer to a person who engages in physical intimacy for hire. So this is what our elders have concluded about the meaning of pornea. From studying New Testament occurrences of pornea, the FBC elders believe the exclusion clauses of Matthew 5.32 and 19.9 to be referring to acts of adultery. So what Jesus would have been saying in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 is if you are married and you divorce your spouse and marry somebody else, you're committing adultery. Except if your spouse had committed adultery. Neither of those passages are saying that divorce must take place. They are simply saying that that would be a clause or a a reason before the Lord that one could divorce their spouse. So... What we also concluded, though, and this is happening a lot in churches today, is that that little phrase in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 does not allow for irreconcilable differences. So when Jesus said, except for pornea, he's not talking about a Christian man and a Christian woman saying, we just can't get along anymore. It's not, uh, that is not a biblical reason for divorce. Or we don't love each other anymore. Or emotional abandonment or marital stress. The word pornea that Jesus is using is talking about illicit physical relationships. In our context today, adultery. So, here's a question that we have to wrestle with. And Bible scholars have wrestled with this question. Why did Mark and Luke not include the exclusion clause when they recorded Jesus' teaching on divorce? So if you look at Mark, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she's committing adultery. Luke, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. See, there's no exclusion clause there at all. So why does Matthew include it, but Mark and Luke make it sound like there's no reason, biblical reason, for divorce at all? Some teachers believe that the Bible does not allow 
for divorce and remarriage because Mark and Luke do not include the exclusion clause. And Matthew uses the word pornea and not the normal word for adultery. So there's there's a bunch of views. These are the three main views. I'm not going to take time to really flesh these out this morning. Some hold that what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 is a reference back to Leviticus 18, where it prohibits like somebody from marrying their sister. And so they think that Jesus was referring to Leviticus 18 in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. There's others who hold to what's called the early church view. One of my professors at Dallas Seminary, a guy named Bill Wenham, wrote a mammoth, or excuse me, Bill Heff, wrote a mammoth book with a guy named Gordon Wenham on this subject, and that's their conclusion, that the early church, the first 500 years of the church, said that you could divorce for immorality, but it did not allow for remarriage. So there's a, uh, a group of people today that would follow this argument because Mark and Luke don't have the exclusion clause. They would say Matthew allows for divorce because of adultery, but not remarriage. Then there's a, a third view that I want to just talk about briefly this morning called the betrothal view. In the book of Matthew, the back book of Matthew is a very Jewish-oriented book. And in Jesus' day, in Jewish circles, they practiced what was called betrothal. It would be like a formal engagement, but instead of just saying, hey, we're engaged, they would actually be considered to be husband and wife, but they would not consummate the marriage until after the period of betrothal was done. So this view would say the exception clause refers to immorality during the betrothal period, of Jewish of the Jewish marriage custom period of formal enge- engagement and does not apply to marriage. They would argue that based on Matthew 1, 18 and 19 and 25 and that Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience and that Matthew used pornea and not the normal word for adultery. So Matthew 1 says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, if you notice in the bottom right-hand corner, I quoted that out of the ESV. The NASB says, desired to put her away secretly. It's the Greek word for divorce. So here... Joseph, when he found out that Mary was pregnant, but she was still a virgin, he sought to actually divorce her. And that's what they called it, even though the marriage had not been consummated. He kept her, and he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So here's what our elders concluded as we've looked at all these positions. Matthew's use of except for the reason of unchastity and except for immorality in 199 must be restricted to adultery within the bonds of marriage, while the three arguments just outlined against divorce and remarriage may have biblical support. They are too restrictive and are based somewhat on an argument of silence or omission. So, in other words, 
we came to the conclusion here at Faith Bible Church that just because Mark and Luke did not have the exclusion clause does not mean that Matthew simply didn't mean that within the bonds of marriage an adultery occurs that divorce and remarriage was permissible. So there are three scenarios here at Faith Bible Church where our elders recognize the possibility of divorce that may allow for remarriage. Number one, divorce and remarriage is permissible in cases of adultery, according to Matthew 5 and 19. Scenario number two, and we're not going to take time to talk about this today, divorce and remarriage is permissible in cases when one mate becomes a Christian and the non-Christian mate desires divorce. So you've got a a Christian and a non-Christian married to, to each other, And the non-Christian says, I don't want to hear any more about this Jesus stuff. I don't want to be married to you anymore. I want a divorce. We would say, according to 1 Corinthians 7, that the wife or the husband, whoever it is, is not under bondage in that situation anymore and would be free to divorce and remarry. And finally, scenario number three, we would also allow for divorce and remarriage if the original divorce took place prior to one's conversion. If a person was divorce before they came to faith in Jesus, um, we would allow our pastoral staff to do a remarriage in that situation. So the pastors and elders do counsel men and women who've suffered divorce that the scriptures teach that they may be happier if they choose not to remarry. According to 1 Corinthians 7, are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Life's hard. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. Whoops. Therefore, if the offended party in a divorce believes they fit into one of the three categories just listed, and this is a reasonable conclusion, the elders of Faith Bible Church will approve our pastoral staff performing a marriage for a person who's suffered divorce. Now, takeaways from this. You're sitting here this morning or at some point in time, you realized, I divorced my spouse. My child divorced their spouse. And they shouldn't have. It didn't honor the Lord. And there's a sense of guilt. That's why we celebrate grace here at Faith Bible Church. Meaning, there's always forgiveness available in Christ. We can always come to Jesus If we confess our sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Ephesians 3 starts in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Secondly, yes, but what about 
our situation. And this is where it gets hard because all of us have been touched in one way or another by divorce. And there's many ways families can be hurting that we haven't talked about this morning. Hebrews 4, Jesus understands. Maybe none of us in this room can totally understand what Jesus Christ does. The New Testament calls us to bear each other's burdens. And Jesus' grace is always there. My grace is sufficient for you. For we did not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may grace to help find help in time of need. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. And finally, marriage is more than a wedding. And it's important for us as those who are followers of Jesus Christ to lift up marriage as we talk about marriage, as we live out our marriages, as we talk to our children and grandchildren of marriage, that the marriage is a covenant relationship before God. That when the disciples understood Jesus' teaching on the permanency of marriage, remember what they said in Matthew 19, 9? Hey, it's better we don't do this. And Jesus said, not everybody can accept that. Jesus is giving us pictures of how a person who is right with God should live. And we have the opportunity to let our light shine in this whole area of marriage. We can be lights shining in a dark place by upholding marriages. God designed it. And we can be praying for our marriages and be encouragers. I've gone over and I realized this wasn't very fun. Um, and I, I'm sorry for the form of communication here. I know what you Rockwell guys probably think, oh, here we go. I'm sitting in the boardroom. I didn't know any other way to get through this amount of material. Um, but feel free to pick up the packets. I'm just going to ask us to stand, and I'm going to close this in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus was showing the disciples the right view of marriage, that it's a covenant before the Lord, holding it in high esteem. And Lord, we thank you that you are a God of grace who meets all of our needs in this room. You have met our hurts and our families and our relationships. And we just thank you for your grace. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.